Isaiah 30, 15-22 For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling. And you said, No, we will flee upon horses, therefore you shall flee away. And we will ride upon swift steeds, therefore your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five you shall flee, till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is the God of justice. Blessed are are all those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion. In Jerusalem you shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself any more, but your eyes shall shall see your teacher. And your ears shall hear a word behind you, saying, This is the way, walk in it, when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. Then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, Be gone. This is God's word. Three months had passed, but I was still full of fear, doubt, and just a touch of self-loathing. Two young men with whom I'd been meeting and trying to encourage towards a relationship with God suddenly cut off that relationship with me. And they avoided me. Anytime I visited the, the school, they stopped attending our, our Young Life Club altogether. And three months after this had happened, I'm at a Christian leadership conference, and a man who I knew decently well, an older man I knew pretty well, started to approach me. He could tell I was troubled see it in his eyes, see it in his face, right? So I, I expected him to show concern with, uh, you know, how's it going? Or, or what's, been, what's, what's been happening lately? And he asked instead, what conversation is going on in your head right now? And I was so caught off guard and also nailed by that question that I blushed fire red. And if you know me, I don't get a beer super easily, but I was just flushed. And so I was just brutally honest. I said, what was going on in my head, that I'm not a worthy leader, that I really shouldn't be here, that, that I'll probably fail if I try it again. And honestly, in my mind, when I get back to campus, I'm probably going to go out and party just to make this all go away. And I realized in that moment, just through that question and my answering back to him, that I was feeling down It had been three months. I was feeling down no longer because of these dudes abandoning me, but rather because of the lies I was telling myself about it. The things I was telling myself, and I think oftentimes I resort to blaming circumstances in my life for why I'm feeling a certain way, either good or bad, when really it's what I'm telling myself about those circumstances, how I'm interpreting them in terms of what they say about me and what they say about the world around me and about the God I worship even. A very wise counselor I really like named uh, Paul Tripp likes to say, there is no more influential person in your life than you because no one talks to you more than you. 
And I'm not talking about schizophrenia here, folks, right? I'm not talking about an outer dialogue where people wonder, is he on his Bluetooth earpiece right now? Nothing like that. I, I really, it doesn't even matter how, how busy a person you are. You are in a con- constant conversation with your soul. And it's ongoing. But all, that also means it's a scary thought. There are some nasty, twisted things that I would never say to another person for fear of how it would impact them. And yet, I say those things to myself. As the most influential person in my life, I will say them to me. Idiot, stupid. I can never do that. My life will never be like that. And even if you don't verbalize them to yourself, it doesn't have to be necessarily verbalized in your minds. We, we just kind of quickly assign categories to things we see. So if we see someone on a luxurious holiday on Instagram, we, we just immediately assign that to, that's the good life. Or we hear a coworker get praised by our boss, and we say, nope, great for them, not me. Right? And we sort of assign ourselves into categories based on things we see and things we experience every day. And in that way, a conversation is always taking place in our minds and in our lives. We are a month strong into a series on the Old Testament writing prophets called Interventions. God intervenes in our lives to start but also sustain a relationship with him. He loves us that much. We get off track. God intervenes to get us back on track walking with him. And often, it's the conversation in our minds that gets us off track. It's not blatant disobedience. It's not neglecting someone. It's not a failure to love. But we get off track as we have this meandering conversation in our minds that gets us off track. We tell ourselves untruths. But God intervenes with promises to fight those untruths. The most prolific writer of the Old Testament, prolific prophetic writer of the Old Testament is Isaiah, or Isaiah, as Kirsten pronounced it well. Thank you, Kirsten. His writings, Isaiah's writings are full, just chalked full of the promises of God. And, and these promises address all of life. I mean, you got it all in Isaiah. And wonderful thing about Isaiah is a lot of times when you read promises in the Old Testament, you have to interpret them through the New Covenant, through what Jesus has done. God promises land. Do we really get land anymore through Jesus? No, but we get abundance and we get eternal life and all these things, right? With Isaiah, he is so close, it feels like, to the Messiah and the spirit of the Savior to come that we don't have to really do much interpreting. Through, through Isaiah... God talks about real consequences for sinning, rebelling against a holy God, but also real hope. Through Isaiah, God promises good news about a Savior. Isaiah alone talks about all these things, the birth, the life, the death, and the future coming of this King, our Savior. Isaiah is the only one to cover the breadth of this great rescuer who was to come. Through Isaiah, God makes promises about our growth and our flourishing as we wait for the Savior to return from heaven. So he cares about our life today, and so he gives promises for that. But there's 66 chapters and 1,292 verses in Isaiah. So the good news is I believe this little section in Isaiah 30 will give us all we need to hear this morning. Eight promises and eight verses. Promises about sin. Promises about the gospel, 
and promises about growth while we wait for Jesus to return. There are promises just everywhere, riddled, even in these eight verses, which leads to the message in a nutshell this morning. If you remember nothing else, remember this. Take time to listen to another voice. Given this ongoing, one-way conversation that's often taking place in our minds throughout our day, we need to take time to listen to another, capital V, voice. And we are going this morning to take time to listen to another voice. So normally I preach a 30 to 40 minute message. This morning it's going to be like three little mini messages. You're going to hear first about sin promises, gospel promises, and then growth promises. And after each set of promises, we're going to pause to reflect, sing, and respond. And so I'm going to preach, then we're going to sing. I'm going to preach, then we're going to sing. I'm going to preach, and then we're going to sing, all right? So first, we're going to talk about sin promises. So we see those here in Isaiah. Isaiah. Promise number one, and I want to make this as personal as possible, so I'm going to say it like this. You promise, God, you promise the free will to say no. To say no. So God opens with this great promise of salvation, of security that we can find only in him. And look what he says here at the end of verse 15, but you were unwilling, and you said, no, we will flee on horses, therefore you shall flee away. We will ride upon swift steeds, fine, therefore your pursuers will be swift. This verse first gives us the essence of sin itself, which is a no to God, a no to God's ways, and a yes to my way. It'd be worth reading the first two verses of Isaiah for you, and you can see that in the Bibles we provided. I'm going to read it to you, though. Isaiah 30, chapter, uh, verses 1 and 2. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine, who make an alliance but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, these who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. So God's people come up with a plan to provide themselves security, but it's not God's plan. Judah, God's southern kingdom, had just seen their sort of big brother, Israel, the northern kingdom, get plundered, deported, and enslaved by another military called Assyria. They've just seen that. And now Assyria is at the border of Judah. They've come south. They're knocking on the door. It seems extremely troublesome. It's like death knocking at your door. It is here. It's coming for you. Where's God? We better make a plan B. Right? Because I'm not sure God didn't didn't spare the Israelites. How will he save us? Can we really trust him? Let's make a plan B just in case. Or as my South African friends like to say, a bitter marking plan. Right? An extra plan, just in case the first plan doesn't work. Plan B, technically, if you want to get specific, are horses. Egypt offered horses, which were kind of the glamour weapon for any military that day. If you had a weaker military, you're going against a stronger military, you wanted horses. Nowadays, it would be testing nuclear weapons. It's a little different, a little different era, and more mass destruction. But back then... You wanted horses. And so that's why God said, fine, flee on your horses. If you want to make a plan B, I'm not going to stop you. God doesn't 
When God's people say no, he doesn't sort of confine them to their room and say, look, you disobey me, you're grounded, you're not going anywhere, that's the way you're going to treat me. That's not how God operates. God will warn us. In love, he'll run after us, but he won't stop us. He allows us the freedom to say no when he pursues us, to respond with no. Uh, C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, believed that every person who, who, who ends up in hell really chose hell. It's awful the places that was. We would never say anyone would choose hell, but he says in the practicality of our lives, every person who ends up in hell chose hell every day of their life. They kept on choosing and choosing. He said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. If you want to do your will, God says, go for it. He says, like, you can do that. You are free to do that. That's why in Romans 1, for those who keep on saying no to God, because you persist in that, God gives those people up to the lustful desires of their hearts. He says, fine, you've said no, you said no, you said no. You can have what you want, but just know it's going to end in your destruction. So that's the first promise. He gives us that freedom. The second promise we see here, promise two, is that, God, you promise that sin will ultimately isolate me. Look at verse 17. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one, at the threat of five, you shall flee till you are left like a flagstaff on top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. This is a haunting image God gives. It's the image of a former military stronghold, like a strong, healthy person. But as you gradually run from God, continue to say no to him, lie a little more, locate your identity and things other than him, things that are unstable, put on different masks for different people. What used to be strong is now weak. The flag still flies, but it's tattered. All the strength is gone. You're isolated. Have you ever read or watched Lord of the Rings, the Lord of the Rings? You remember the one ring to rule them all, the one ring to bind them. The one ring had the effect of magnifying self. Whoever put it on, whoever had it, got obsessed with themselves. And, and there was an interesting effect. You remember in the movie when, when Frodo puts it on, everything around him turns gray and turns blurry. And in the book, Samwise Gamgee, his friend, puts it on the ring. And this is what Tolkien says about that. He says, all things around Sam were not dark but vague, while he himself was there in this gray and hazy world, alone, like a small, black, solid rock. As I choose my way, not God's way, long enough, it results in the self-absorption absorption, such that me and my needs are the only real, solid thing left in my life. The only thing I can really see, all of their concerns that are going on around me seem vague, hazy, unimportant in comparison. You ever felt that way when you continued in sin? It's just me now. God warns us. He, he promises that sin unchecked will ultimately isolate us. Promise number three, God, you promise that one day, for those who trust you, you promise one day I will be rid of all my sin. Look at verse 22. Here's the hope here. Then you will defile that day. You will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver 
and your gold-plated metal images and scatter them as unclean things, and you will say to them, be gone. That no we read about in verse 17, that no against God we read about in verse 17 will one day replace, be replaced by be gone to everything I put in God's place. Guys, idolatry at its core is any good thing, my job, my kids, my spouse, my savings account, my reputation that I make into an ultimate thing that I put in the place of God. Now, back in these days, it was customary to plate some less precious metal. As we see in verse 22, less precious metal, bronze or wood, and you would plate it with gold and silver to kind of dress it up, make it look beautiful, which made getting rid of an idol even more difficult because you added value to that idol. You invested in that idol, so it was worth keeping around. And the same is true of our idols. We've invested a little extra in them, so they might be worth keeping around even in a pinch in case we need them. This is why I keep around my Netflix password, right, and my Oreos in the fridge because I want to keep my comfort idol around, right? So I just keep some things around me, you know, just so I can indulge. As as a Christian, the more you fall in love with Jesus, the more you're going to hate your sin and anything you put in God's place. I'm not there yet. I'm ashamed that I, I still allow my idols to fly with me on standby. But one day, I will be rid of them. Let's pray. God, you will not violate this freedom we have to say no. But you promise that the more I say no to you, the more I will be isolated in my life until there's no strength left. And yet even as we face these harsh realities you promise about sin, we do so in the hope that for those of us who trust Christ, one day we will be rid of all our sin. Let's stand together and reflect on these promises about sin. We'll continue with our second set of promises we see here in Isaiah. Gospel promises. We move from sin to our rebellion, our separation from God, to promises about good news of a Savior. Promise four. You promise to reveal yourself to me. Look at that in verse 20. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher, your, your rabbis would be Jewish. John 1.18 says this, kind of fulfills this, says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side He has made him known. And of course, we know that is Jesus Christ. Jesus made sure not only to be seen after he rose from the dead three times to his disciples, but he appeared to over 500 people because he wanted people to see with their own eyes that he was the Savior. He was the strong one to come and rescue his people. John 6.37 says, Whoever comes to me, I will not turn away. If you seek God earnestly, you will find Jesus. You'll see Jesus, and he will never turn you away. My older brother was in Chicago for a medical conference, and at the time, we were living just outside the city of Chicago, and so I went into the city. We spent the entire day together and arguably the greatest city in the United States. I love Chicago. Wonderful time. At the end of the day, I turned to my brother, and I said, you know, there's something 
that I want to I say to you, maybe even pray for you, but I'm just not sure that I should. And my brother, like, like a true brother, like we're just, we were just connected, he said, I think I know what it is. You want me to know Jesus, and you're worried about asking God to do whatever it takes, whatever it takes for me to know Jesus. Even if that means pain and hardship, suffering, loss. And he was like right on. It's like, that, that's it. I so desperately want you to know Christ. Next couple of years, my brother and his wife have their second child. Uh, he has epilepsy, accompanied by frequent seizures in his life. And this has caused him to have delayed learning, significantly delayed learning. And it has been a trial, to say the least, for him and for them, driving them to their knees. Now, today, number one, my brother knows Christ. <laughs> Amen. And this boy, he's, he's the kindest, sweetest kid you'll ever know. And he's the only one among my brother's kids who does know Christ, who trusts Jesus. And it's sometimes only through the bread of adversity, the water of affliction, isn't it? That we really see Jesus for who he is. That we're really driven to see Jesus as our Savior. As, as a God who himself lived on earth, as Isaiah put it, was a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. The suffering that we go through. So it's often only during those times that we can finally see Jesus clearly. Oh, you're that kind of God. And that's who he reveals himself to be. God does in Jesus Christ. The promise four, you promise to reveal yourself to me. Promise number five, you promise security through your work, not mine. Through your work, not mine. Verse 15, for thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest shall you be saved. In quietness and trust shall be your strength. We recall earlier that God's people had their own plan B when things got really scary in their lives. Security through alliance, not reliance on him. The horses of Egypt would come in handy, of course, if God failed to come through. And any religious person can justify this. God, look how much good we can do if we have these resources, these horses in our armies, we can protect the land you've given us, the promised land. Look at this. God, we can actually help you out if we help ourselves. It's kind of like those over the years who've come to me who want to pursue great wealth in their life as their plan B. And they, they've all, they'll say to me, and I understand where it's coming from, think about how much good I can do for the kingdom of God if I'm really wealthy. And so they pursue not just wealth, but great wealth in their lives, not recognizing that's a gift from God, number one, but it's so deceptive, pursuing it, certainly, and loving money. We justify ourselves. We, God, yes, I'm going with plan B for security, but it's a good thing. Jesus promises rest. Rest from working for our security. A Filipino friend of mine once shared an old story of a driver of a caribou wagon who was on his way to a market. And he overtook an old man who was carrying this, this heavy load on his shoulders. So taking compassion on him, the, the driver invited him, the old man, to ride with him on the wagon. So he rode him back, and gratefully the old man accepted. And he, a few minutes later, the driver turned around just, just to see what the old man was doing. And that old man still had that burden on his shoulders. Even though he was being carried from point A to point B, even though he was secure in this cart, Christians, we are saved by grace. 
by a free gift. But what happens is we think, I, okay, now that I'm saved by grace, I have to carry this heavy load for God to really earn it, to earn that grace. And so we locate our true security elsewhere in what we do or in what we earn in our lives. In Hebrews 4, God tells us there's a promise of rest for all who trust in Jesus. That you can rest from that work. That you can rest secure that because of what Jesus, the work he has done for you on the, with his life and on the cross, you can rest that you're totally accepted by him. Isn't that wonderful? He has taken the burden from our shoulders of, tr- of striving to create our own security, our own plan B, and he puts that burden on his own shoulders. That's promise five. We can Rest secure in his work, not our own. Promise six, you promise you are waiting to show me grace. I love these verses. Therefore, verse 18, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. What a wonderful promise. Therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. God, as we remember, isn't forcing himself upon us. He, he gives us the freedom to respond. In the New Testament, Jesus tells a wonderful parable about this. A young man, a young son, asks his father for his inheritance with the intention of leaving his father forever. He leaves, and he goes and spends all the father's money on himself. And every day, the boy is away. The father waits on his porch, and he watches, and he watches, and he watches. And the day his son finally returns, the father runs to embrace his son. He runs out to embrace him, kisses him. He gives him the family ring to assure him that he's still part of the family and deeply loved, and he gives him the best food because the father just wants to be good to his son. That is the father towards you who have wandered too far in your life. What you feel like is too far. You you can't get back to God. He is waiting to be immeasurably good to you, gracious to you. It says here that he exalts himself to show mercy to you. That's to remind us of what Jesus did for us in the resurrection. Literally, God lifts himself up to release us from what we truly deserve. Do you know why Jesus rose from the dead? To prove he is God, yes. Confirm all his promises towards us, yes. But there is a straight-up reason from the Bible. Romans 4.25 says that Jesus was delivered for our trespasses. He was raised for our justification. In other words, Jesus was raised from the dead so he could justly, as God, declare us right with God. You are right with God, even though you don't deserve it. And in mercy, he he grants that we can live with him forever. God is waiting to show us grace. So let's, let's pray together. God, you reveal, you promise you will reveal yourself to any who seek you. You promise security and salvation through your work and not mine. And you promise that you are even now waiting to show me grace. So let's all pause and seek that Father who wants to show us grace. Let's stand and sing. Now for our final promises that we see here in this wonderful passage. Those are growth promises. wonderful thing is that before Jesus comes to reclaim us finally to himself forever, he wants us to grow, to be more like him, to continue to trust him more and more as we just sang. A part of growing as a Christian is recognizing the path that God has laid out for you, recognizing the right way he wants you to walk and being obedient to that. So promise seven 
is here, not surprisingly. Promise 7 is, you promise your Holy Spirit to guide me. Look at verse 21, which is surely anticipation of the Holy Spirit. And your ears shall hear a word behind you, saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. This is fulfilled in the Holy Spirit. And in John's gospel, Jesus promised that when he ascends to heaven, he would give us his Holy Spirit, who, we're told, will guide us into all truth. That he would bring glory to Jesus Glory to me by taking for what is mine and making it known to you. John 16. Isaiah gives us a picture both of the nearness of the teacher, the teacher, but also the sensitivity of the pupil. To be able to just hear the teacher walking just behind us at our shoulder. And yet just that quiet whisper is enough for us to hear him. And, and walk on the straight path that God has laid out for us. When we begin to wander and wobble to the right and to the left in our lives, which we are prone to do, there's that whisper of the Holy Spirit, the better life, the fulfilling life, the life of trust and of flourishing is here. And we hear that and we can walk with him. What a gift God promised us in the Holy Spirit. Now, people often ask me, you know, Ryan, how do I know, though, that it's the Holy Spirit who's guiding me? That is not my thoughts and my feelings. And it's a great question. If we look at what Jesus teaches right in John 16, the Holy Spirit guides by making known and reminding us of what Jesus said. The most certain way we can know the Holy Spirit's guiding is by getting to know the words of Jesus himself. There's no shortcut to that, right? There's no shortcut. You actually have to, to read Jesus' words and get to know him. As you do so, and as you grow, you'll see that the Holy Spirit guides primarily by way of old reminders, not new revelations. He reminds us, he reminds us, he reminds us of who he is and the good he has for us. And that is wonderful. Promise eight. God, you promise to answer every one of my prayers. Look at that in verse 19. For a people shall dwell in Zion and Jerusalem, you shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry, as soon as he hears it, he answers you. About once a month, our youngest son, Gage, he gets these pains in his legs, often called growing pains, right? And they, he's growing, but it hurts, and it occasionally causes him to ache and to cry out to mom or dad until we kind of rub his legs a little bit, give him a little relief. He's sweet like that. As we grow in this life and help others grow, we're going to experience pain. It's part of what God uses. It's part of the, the package he brings in helping us grow and rely on him. We're going to experience that. And our Father wants us to cry out to him for relief. When is it then, or why is it then, that that's the case, that sometimes our prayers are met with silence? It's a great question. Let me offer three possibilities. I can't talk about it long. If, if you want to, I actually did a whole sermon on why this happens sometimes back in uh, December of 2011. If you want to hop on to our media archive, look at that. Why does God sometimes meet our prayers, answer our prayers with silence? Sometimes it's because, number one, we're not ready. We're not ready to receive what he has to give to us. It's like a child who wants to pick on the farm, pick a, a not yet ripe fruit, and yet only the seasoned farmer knows when to pick it, right? When, it, when it's going to be ready to receive 
in a way that will be full of taste and full of goodness and full of life. And that's the way the Father is with us. He knows when, it, when you'll be ready to receive what you ask for. Sometimes he answers with silence. Another, another reason is sometimes God has something greater in mind. The Bible also promises that, that God, in the midst of prayer, can, can do immeasurably more than we ask or even imagine. So that silence sometimes means he's preparing us something greater. And thirdly, sometimes the reason God answers with silence is he's teaching us to pray what is absolutely best. Jesus promised about prayer, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. Well, sometimes our first wish in the spirit of Aladdin isn't the best (laughs) thing to actually pray for. But if we are listening to God's words, we will begin to pray them back to him. His truths, his words, especially his promises. And I would encourage you, when you pray, appeal to God's promises. That's what the saints in the Old Testament did over and over and over again. It almost seems manipulative of them. And be like, God, remember your promise. God, remember what you promised us. And God hears, and he loves to be gracious when we appeal to what he has promised to us. When we pray, it's interesting, we always close with an amen, don't we? So be it what that means, literally. It's a declaration that with God, a thing is as good as done. The Apostle Paul would teach it this way, 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That is why, that is why, through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. It's as we pray back those promises of God, and they are all yes, they're all life, they're all goodness to us in Christ. All the promises of God, there's so many of them that we can say amen to the glory of God. So let's pray now. God, you promised to guide us through your Holy Spirit. Thank you for sending him to guide us. And God, you promised to answer every one of our prayers, maybe not in the way that we expected, but in a gracious and good way. Thank you, God, for all of these promises today, which are yes because of you, Christ Jesus. It is because of your precious promises that we can say amen to the end of every prayer. Let's stand together and remember those promises once more.